You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to a special edition of the Fleming Foundation podcast. I'm Stephen Heiner, and with me today I have Dr. Serja Trifkovich. Dr. Trifkovich, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you again. We're going to talk about the the newest outrage uh, uh, going through America, which is the opposition to President Trump. Uh, I'm still getting used to saying that, Dr. Trifkovich. President Trump's uh, Muslim ban. And the very first place we need to start is by exploring whether it's actually true to call it such a thing. Uh, can you tell us uh, if it's possible to use the word Muslim ban to describe what has happened? Absolutely not, because first of all, uh, the seven countries in question, which are Iran, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Sudan, Yemen, and Somalia, were all designated by uh, the Obama administration as uh, areas of uh, increased terrorist risk, uh, which require particular scrutiny uh, when visas are issued. In addition, uh, if we look at the distribution of Muslim population worldwide, uh, it is obvious that the most populous countries majority Muslim countries were not affected and they are to be specific Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Egypt and Turkey. Last but not least uh, the countries that produce the most deadly terrorists uh, which is to say the 19 participants in the 9-11 attacks 15 of them came from Saudi Arabia which also wasn't affected. So to say that in some strange way, countries which had been designated by the Obama administration as particularly risky for terrorism and which do not comprise more than perhaps 15% of a Muslim population worldwide between them, to somehow claim that this is a, quote, Muslim ban, unquote, is simply incorrect. But on the other hand, it is obviously very convenient for President Trump's political opponents who want to link this uh, executive order with his statement uh, as a candidate in December of 2015 that he would impose a temporary ban on the entry of Muslims from any country until new vetting uh, procedures were in place. And I believe that uh, regardless of the facts of the case, people who are protesting against him and people who are making legal rulings uh, against uh, the executive order really have a political agenda which is uh, not connected to the facts of the case itself. Well, let's pretend it would be a ban on Muslims, as you said, candidate Trump discussed, or at least a, a temporary halting. Would that be such a bad thing? Well, of course not. But that would go against uh, the, the world outlook of uh, uh, the liberal establishment on both sides of the Atlantic who are Trump's sworn enemies uh, for a variety of reasons, because he really threatened the very basis of uh, 
their value system and uh, of their control over the political, media, cultural and academic establishment. Uh, if we look at uh, the whole concept of allowing anyone from wherever he or she came to enter the United States, it's uh, a novel idea. Uh, if in, in 1952, uh, uh, the McCurran uh, law was enacted, uh, put onto statute books, which specifically linked beliefs and uh, values to the admissibility of both visitors and immigrants to the United States. And even though it was meant to be used primarily against uh, uh, the communists and uh, uh, potential infiltrators and subversives who owed their allegiance to the Soviet Union, it was in fact worded in such a way that uh, it could be used against potential jihadists. And uh, I believe that, in fact, uh, it is strange that uh, opponents of Trump's executive order had not looked carefully into the possibility that uh, the McCurran legislation could be invoked in a very important segment. Uh, in the long term, uh, there is a segment of uh, the January 27th executive order that in fact can be used as a grounds for what would effectively amount to a Muslim ban. And let me quote, it's a long one, but, but very important because of its uh, potential legal ramifications. In order to protect Americans, the United States must ensure that those admitted to this country do not bear hostile attitudes toward it and its founding principles. The United States cannot and should not admit those who do not support the Constitution or those who place violent ideologies over American law. In addition, the United States should not admit those who engage in acts of bigotry or hatred in brackets, including quote-unquote honor killings, other forms of violence against women, or the persecution of those who practice religions different from their own, close brackets, or those who would oppress Americans of any race, gender, or sexual orientation. This is the end of quote. Now, I'm actually surprised that uh, the focus of the protesters and uh, generally opponents of, of Trump's policies did not focus on this particular segment, and I suspect it's because it is also potentially embarrassing. Because if you say this amounts to a ban on Muslims, you are really admitting that uh, the Muslims, if they're true to their faith, uh, are potentially hostile to the United States and its founding principles, uh, that they would engage in acts of bigotry or hatred, etc., etc. Because you see, Section 1 implicitly treats Orthodox Islam as a violent ideology inimical to America's founding principles. And uh, uh, if you uh, proceed with what Trump calls extreme vetting, uh, it would amount to a Muslim declaring that he accepts the Constitution of the United States as the source of his highest loyalty which is, in fact, a potential act of apostasy. Uh, and apostasy is punishable by death under the Islamic law. Because 
the Sharia to a Muslim is not just an addition to the Constitution or a parallel civil code that coexists with that uh, with the laws of the United States. Uh, for a Muslim, it's the only true code and the only basis of legislation, because to be legitimate, all political power, according to Orthodox Islam, must exclusively rest with those who enjoy Allah's authority, like the early caliphs of the 7th century, on the basis of his revealed will. And uh, because America is a country based upon man-made laws and man-made constitution, uh, it is illegitimate from the beginning. Uh, it's drafters, and I understand that uh, Bannon was uh, one of the important uh, hands in crafting this particular executive order. Its drafters obviously knew that uh, it would provide immigration officials and law enforcers with a powerful tool. Uh, it now means that uh, in-person videotaped interviews may include questions such as may Muslims convert out of Islam, may a woman show her face in public, should non-Muslims be subject to Sharia, do you welcome non-Muslims to your house, do you have any non-Muslim friends, etc., etc. Uh, and uh, that uh, posed over a period of time and in different ways, they could, can indeed weed out potential jihadists from the pool of applicants. And uh, to my mind, this is in fact far more important section of uh, the executive order than the one imposing a temporary ban on visitors from the seven quoted countries. Well, I suppose, interestingly, that it, for, for the Muslims who did apostatize, that would make the United States a, a sort of refugee country for former Muslims. Indeed, and it is also significant that uh, the same executive order uh, provides special protection for persecuted uh, minorities, which obviously implies Christians, potentially Yazidis, but also Muslim apostates. And... Uh, uh, Again, let me repeat this, uh, if uh, proclaimed legal and constitutional, and I suspect the whole issue will go to the Supreme Court, uh, would provide uh, the immigration officials with a very powerful tool, effectively to exclude not people from uh, seven countries with only 15% of the overall Muslim population, but to exclude any uh, orthodox practicing devout Muslim who, by definition, cannot accept that the U.S. Constitution and its secular legislation is the highest uh, uh, source of loyalty and the absolute uh, 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 source of his personal commitment once he, he or she comes to the United States. Now, you mentioned... Uh Christians, Dr. Trifkovich, obviously uh, President Trump mentioned that there would be a preference for Christians from some of these persecuted countries, although some would argue that the United States is admittedly, as you mentioned, secular principles, founding, government, however you want to look at it, prevent such a preference from existing. Do you accept that? No, because if you look at the text, it says uh, that exceptions to the refugee injunction can be made, and I quote, when the person is a religious minority in his country or nationality,
facing religious persecution. So uh, one could argue that by not naming uh, Christians, he actually applies a secular principle of providing refuge to persecuted religious minorities. And as I said earlier, it can also include Yazidis or uh, even the Shia in, uh, in majority Sunni Muslim countries, such as the United Arab Emirates uh, or Saudi Arabia, or indeed uh, the Muslims who want to leave faith and who uh, could be punishable, punished by death for doing so. Would you agree that the, although we haven't seen whether these are sustained protests, we've seen, you know, a few days here and there, the, the United States and the world are not ready for a Trump-Trifkovich joint policy on Islam? Uh, it is a moot point because obviously we don't have counter-protests and uh, what we are witnessing is the claim by the same mainstream media machine which had acted as an integral part of Hillary Clinton uh, campaign that uh, these measures are not popular. But if you look at the polling methods, uh, they're exactly the same as those which had consistently indicated that Hillary Clinton had between 4 and 11 percentage points lead over Donald Trump. But if you look at the Pew poll, which uh, used anonymous uh, polling methods, uh, then uh, an entirely different picture emerges. Then it appears that, in fact, the majority, 48%, favor uh, the executive order of 27th of January, whereas 41 oppose it and the rest do not know. So I think we still have a quiet majority which is out there and which approves, uh, in spite of all the media outcry and indoctrination, which actually approves of uh, similar measures. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if even in Europe, in countries such as the Netherlands or France, not to mention Eastern Europe, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, Trump could count on significant uh, segments of support for uh, similar measures in their own countries. Well, you mentioned Europe, and we're in the midst of an election season here in France. Uh, we will be in Germany as well quite soon this summer. What has been the effect in your observation of this executive order upon uh, candidates in, in Europe and, uh, let's say, feeling in Europe in general? What has been the reaction? Well, obviously, uh, among the establishmentarian politicians of the European Union, and particularly Chancellor Merkel and uh, her opposition, if that is the right word, uh, uh, opposition counter-candidate Martin Schulz, uh, it, it's just sheer horror because uh, Trump had also questioned the wisdom of her policy of open doors and he has more than once mentioned, including on Monday night, uh, speaking to the military in Florida, that uh, such policies breed disaster and that at the same time the media are sometimes complicit in concealing the full effects of such policy. Uh, so, also we had Federica Mogherini at uh, the EU uh, summit in Malta saying that refugees must remain welcome and that is the firm policy of the European Union. So, 
the establishment politicians in Brussels and in all major capitals are simply on automatic pilot, come what may. On the other hand, uh, I think that legitimizing this approach by the most powerful country in the world, and let's face it, until uh, the presidential campaign even talking in this vein would have been considered beyond the pale by the ruling establishment, Trump has simply legitimized a new form of discourse and uh, uh, legal and political challenges notwithstanding, he has made it possible to think in these terms even though doing so before his appearance on the scene would have been considered not only illegitimate but possibly illegal. We know that in France we had some uh, pretty harsh verdicts against people who dared speak outside and think outside the box. In, uh, I believe, three, four years ago, Yvan Riouful, Le Figaro's columnist, faced criminal charges for something called insulting Islam. And Renaud Camus, one of France's most prominent writers, uh, in 2014 was even found guilty and ordered to pay a 4,000 euro fine for warning of the danger of the Great Replacement, the colonization of France by Muslim immigrants from the Maghreb, from uh, primarily North Africa. Now, uh, strictly speaking, uh, Trump's statements during the campaign and the implications of his executive orders uh, may even be legally punishable by some uh, uh, domestic legislations, primarily in, in Germany and Austria, also in the Netherlands, where last December opposition leader Geert Wilders was found guilty of something called incitement to anti-minority discrimination. It sounds like a perfectly Orwellian charge. Uh, so I think the effect of uh, phenomenon Trump is to make a new form of discourse on uh, immigration, on uh, demography, on culture, and on religion possible. And I think it will be extremely difficult for the upholders of the old order to continue imposing their velvet-gloved totalitarianism and uh, to keep the norms of a uh, bien-pensant paradigm enforceable in the, with the same rigor that had been the case before. I remember when we had you on the podcast sometime after Trump had made the statement, candidate Trump had made the statement that you said he was out Trifkoviching Trifkovich. <laughs> and uh, as you say, he's moved the goalposts to, to make something discussable that wasn't even legally thinkable. You could say, quote unquote, legally thinkable. Um, now that he's moved the discourse forward, as you say, where do you, how do you see this playing out over the next, let's say, six to 12 months, because we have the French and German elections uh, now, and then we, we have the triggering of Article 50, which will happen next, uh, next month for the British. So over the next six to 12 months, how will the politics of how the United States deals with Muslims broadly, but let's say immigrants generally, play out in, in Europe and worldwide? Uh, I have a strong suspicion that uh, the ruling establishment in Europe 
will play the anti-American rather than strictly anti-Trump card. And uh, anti-Americanism has been present in uh, the leftist intellectual circles in Europe for many decades. Uh, it was very strongly pronounced in France, for instance, in the late 1940s and the 1950s, when uh, uh, the philosophers of Jean-Paul Sartre's ilk dominated uh, uh, the smart cafes and salons of uh, Rive Gauche, and when uh, uh, this sentiment was strongly connected to an affinity with uh, the Marxist world outlook and uh, with Soviet policies in particular. Uh, this moved on after uh, 1968 to a more culturally Marxist-intoned uh, amorophobia, uh, linked also with the war in Vietnam and uh, with the perception that the United States uh, was culturally conquering Europe with Hollywood and uh, rock music and so on. So I think that uh, the elite class, particularly in France and Germany, will try to uh, portray the United States as somehow uh, beyond the pale in the cultural sense and that the Europeans are also sensitive and much more sophisticated and better equipped to deal with these complex challenges which cannot be reduced to some form of uh, uh, clash of civilizations because, of course, there isn't a single Islam. There are many varieties of Islam and uh, there are many elements of discourse, including discrimination, lack of opportunity, marginalization and so on, that we need to probe our own selves in order to understand the phenomenon of terrorism and uh, the reasons for insufficient assimilation of, of immigrant communities into the host societies. And uh, of course, this will be done in a manner that will imply that anyone daring disagree is uh, a person who is not only politically but also morally deviant. And uh, we already see this in Germany in the way uh, that people who express any uh, skepticism about Chancellor Merkel's policies are being literally squeezed out of polite society, including university lecturers, and uh, that any hint of disagreement with the establishmentarian paradigm will increasingly carry potential legal consequences. So there will be a combination of uh, media propaganda in, and indoctrination based upon Europe's uniqueness vis-a-vis -vis the United States, where this barbarian uh, can come to power, which of course in uh, oh ever so sensitive genderless Europe can <laughs> never happen, uh, combined with increasing attempts to turn what I would used to call velvet-gloved totalitarianism into an increasingly naked variety where expressions of dissent will be criminalized. That uh, more than once over the past couple of decades, my gloomy predictions uh, came to pass and so I would simply 
try to end on a more optimistic note by saying that uh, uh, Brexit and Trump's victory indicate that uh, the game is not up. The global bien-pensants in the elite class are jihad's de facto allies, of course, or what Lenin would call uh, useful fools. But they're ruthless, arrogant, and manipulative and contemptuous of the deplorables in the flyover country. And of course, Europe also has its flyover country, even though it's not as compact as the United States. But the deplorables have shown their capacity to uh, reassert themselves. And uh, they simply refuse to share the death wish of the elite class and self-annihilate. And these political upheavals in Britain in June and in the, in, in the United States in November show that the game is not up, that Dar al-Islam is not inevitably the end of the road and that there are tens of millions of Westerners who are still endowed with feelings and reason and the awareness of who they are. And I think that's an excellent way for us to end, Dr. Trifkovich. Thanks so much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.